Section 20 of The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Montgomery's Bank Holiday. When this was accomplished, and we had washed and eaten, Montgomery and I went into my little room and seriously discussed our position for the first time. It was then near midnight. He was almost sober, but greatly disturbed in his mind. He had been strangely under the influence of Moreau's personality. I do not think it ever occurred to him that Moreau could die. This disaster was a sudden collapse of the habits that had become part of his nature in the ten or more monotonous years he had spent on the island. He talked vaguely, answered my questions crookedly, wandered into general questions. This silly ass of a world, he said. What a muddle it all is. I haven't had any life. I wonder when it's going to begin. Sixteen years being bullied by nurses and schoolmasters at their own sweet will. Five in London grinding hard at medicine. Bad food. Shabby lodgings. Shabby clothes. Shabby vice. A blunder. I didn't know any better. And hustled off to this beastly island. Ten years here. What is it all for, Prendick? Are we bubbles blown by a baby? It was hard to deal with such ravings. The thing we have to think of now, said I is how to get away from this island. What's the good of getting away? I'm an outcast. Where am I to join on? It's all very well for you, Prendick. Poor old Moreau. We can't leave him here to have his bones picked. As it is, and besides, what would become of the decent part of the beast folk? Well, said I, that will do tomorrow. I've been thinking we make the brushwood into a pyre and burn his body, and those other things. Then what will happen with the beast folk? I don't know. I suppose those that were made of beast of prey will make silly asses of themselves sooner or later. We can't massacre the lot, can we? I suppose that's what your humanity would suggest. But they'll change. They are sure to change. He talked thus inconclusively until at last I felt my temper going. Damnation, he exclaimed at some petulance of mine. Can't you see I'm in a worse hole than you are? And he got up and went for the brandy. Drink, he said, returning. You logic-chopping, chalky-faced saint of an atheist. Drink. Not I, said I, and sat grimly watching his face under the yellow paraffine flare as he drank himself into a garrulous misery. I have a memory of infinite tedium. He wandered into maudlin defense of the beast people and of Malang. Malang, he said, was the only thing that had ever really cared for him, and suddenly an idea came to him. I'm damned said he, staggering to his feet and clutching the brandy bottle. By some flash of intuition, I knew what it was that he intended. You don't give drink to that beast, I said, rising and facing him. Beast, said he. You're the beast. He takes his liquor like a Christian. Come out of the way, Prendick. For God's sakes, said I. Get out of the way, he roared, and suddenly whipped out his revolver. Very well, said I and stood aside, half-minded to fall upon him as he put his hand upon the latch, but deterred by the thought of my useless arm, you've made a beast of yourself. To the beast you may go. He flung the doorway open, and stood half-facing me between the yellow lamplight and the pallid glare of the moon. His eye sockets were blotches of black under his stubbly eyebrows. You're a solemn prig, Prendick, a silly ass. You're always fearing and fancying. We're on the edge of things. I'm bound to cut my throat tomorrow. I'm going to have a damned bank holiday tonight. He turned and went out into the moonlight. Maling, he cried. Maling, old friend. Three dim creatures, in the silvery light, 
came along the edge of the wan beach, one a white-wrapped creature, the other two blotches of blackness following it. They halted, staring. Then I saw Maling's hunched shoulders as he came round the corner of the house. "'Drink!' cried Montgomery. "'Drink, you brutes. Drink and be men. Damn, I'm the cleverest. Moreau forgot this. This is the last touch. Drink, I tell you.' And waving the bottle in his hand, he started off at a kind of quick trot to the westward, Maling ranging himself between him and the three dim creatures who followed. I went to the doorway. They were already indistinct in the mist of the moonlight before Montgomery halted. I saw him administer a dose of the raw brandy to Maling, and saw the five figures melt into one vague patch. Sing, I heard Montgomery shout. Sing all together. Confound old Prendick. That's right. Now again. Confound old Prendick. The black group broke up into five separate figures, and wound slowly away from me along the band of shining beach. Each went howling at his own sweet will, yelping insults at me, or giving whatever other vent this new inspiration of Brandy demanded. Presently I heard Montgomery's voice shouting, Right turn! And they passed with their shouts and howls into the blackness of the landward trees. Slowly, very slowly, they receded into silence. The peaceful splendor of the night healed again. The moon was now past the meridian, and traveling down the west. It was at its full, and very bright, riding through the empty blue sky. The shadow of the wall lay, a yard wide, of inky blackness at my feet. The eastward sea was a featureless gray, dark and mysterious. And between the sea and the shadow, the gray sands, of volcanic glass and crystals, flashed and shone like a beach of diamonds. Behind me, the paraffin lamp flared hot and ruddy. Then I shut the door locked it, and went into the enclosure where Moreau lay beside his latest victims, the staghounds and the llama and some other wretched brutes, with his massive face calm even after his terrible death, and with the hard eyes open, staring at the dead white moon above. I sat down upon the edge of the sink, and with my eyes upon the ghastly pile of silvery light and ominous shadows began to turn over my plans. In the morning I would gather some provisions in the dinghy, and after setting fire to the pyre before me, push out into the desolation of the high sea once more. I felt that for Montgomery there was no help, that he was, in truth, half akin to these beast folk, unfitted for human kindred. I do not know how long I sat there scheming. It must have been an hour or so. Then my planning was interrupted by the return of Montgomery to my neighborhood. I heard a yelling from many throats, a tumult of exultant cries passing down towards the beach, whooping and howling and excited shrieks that seemed to come to a stop near the water's edge. The riot rose and fell. I heard heavy blows and the splintering smash of wood, but it did not trouble me then. A discordant chanting began. My thoughts went back to my means of escape. I got up, brought the lamp, and went into a shed to look at some kegs I had seen there. Then I became interested in the contents of some biscuit tins and opened one. I saw something out of the tail of my eye, a red figure, and turned sharply. Behind me lay the yard, vividly black and white in the moonlight, in the pile of wooden faggots on which Moreau and his mutilated victims lay, one over another. They seemed to be gripping one another in one last revengeful grapple. His wounds gaped, black as night, and the blood that had dripped lay in black patches upon the sand. Then I saw, without understanding, the cause of my phantom, a ruddy glow that came and danced and went upon the wall opposite. I misinterpreted this, fancied it was a reflection of my flickering lamp, and turned again to the stores in the shed. I went on rummaging among them, as well as I one-armed man could, finding this convenient thing and that, and putting them aside for tomorrow's launch. 
My moments were slow, and the time passed quickly, insensibly the daylight crept upon me. The chanting died down, giving place to a clamor. Then it began again, and suddenly broke into a tumult. I heard cries of, more, more, a sound like quarreling, and a sudden wild shriek. The quality of the sounds changed so greatly that it arrested my attention. I went out into the yard and listened. Then cutting like a knife across the confusion came the crack of a revolver. I rushed at once through my room to the little doorway. As I did so, I heard some of the packing cases behind me go sliding down and smash together with a clatter of glass on the floor of the shed. But I did not heed these. I flung the door open and looked out. Off the beach by the boathouse, a bonfire was burning, raining up sparks into the indistinctness of the dawn. Around the struggle, a mass of black figures. I heard Montgomery call my name. I began to run at once towards this fire, revolver in hand. I saw the pink tongue of Montgomery's pistol lick out once, close to the ground. He was down. I shouted with all my strength and fired into the air. I heard someone cry, The master! The knotted black struggle broke into scattering units. The fire leapt and sank down. The crowd of beast people fled in sudden panic before me, up the beach. In my excitement, I fired at their retreating backs as they disappeared among the bushes. Then I turned to the black heaps upon the ground. Montgomery lay on his back with the hairy gray beast man sprawling across his body. The brute was dead, but still gripping Montgomery's throat with its curving claws. Nearby lay Malang on his face, and quite still, his neck bitten open and the upper part of the smashed brandy bottle in his hand. Two other figures lay near the fire, the one motionless, and the other groaning fitfully, every now and then raising its head slowly, then dropping it again. I caught hold of the gray man and pulled him off Montgomery's body. His claws drew down the torn coat reluctantly as I dragged him away. Montgomery was dark in the face and scarcely breathing. I splashed seawater on his face and pillowed his head on my rolled-up coat. Maling was dead. The wounded creature by the fire, it was a wolf brute with a bearded gray face, lay, I found, with the forepart of its body upon the still-glowing timber. The wretched thing was injured so dreadfully that in mercy I blew its brains out at once. The other brute was one of the bull men swathed in white. He too was dead. The rest of the beast people had vanished from the beach. I went to Montgomery again and knelt beside him, cursing my ignorance of medicine. The fire beside me had sunk down, and only charred beams of timber, glowing at the central ends and mixed with a gray ash of brushwood, remained. I wondered casually where Montgomery had got his wood. Then I saw that the dawn was upon us. The sky had grown brighter. The setting moon was becoming pale and opaque in the luminous blue of the day. The sky to the eastward was rimmed with red. Suddenly I heard a thud and a hissing behind me, and, looking around, sprang to my feet with a cry of horror. Against the warm dawn, great tumultuous masses of black smoke were boiling up out of the enclosure, and through their stormy darkness shot flickering threads of blood-red flame. Then the thatched roof caught. I saw the curving charge of the flames across the sloping straw. A spurt of fire jetted from the window of my room. I knew at once what had happened. I remembered the crash I had heard. When I had rushed out to Montgomery's assistance, I had overturned the lamp. The hopelessness of saving any of the contents of the enclosure stared me in the face. My mind came back to my plan of flight, and turning swiftly I looked to see where the two boats lay upon the beach. They were gone. Two axes lay upon the sands beside me. Chips and splinters were scattered broadcast, and the ashes of the bonfire were blackening and smoking under the dawn. Montgomery had burnt the boats to revenge himself upon me and prevent our return to mankind. A sudden convulsion of rage shook me. 
I was almost moved to batter his foolish head in as he lay there helpless at my feet. Then suddenly his hand moved, so feebly, so pitifully, that my wrath vanished. He groaned and opened his eyes for a minute. I knelt down beside him and raised his head. He opened his eyes again, staring silently at the dawn, and then they met mine. The lids fell. Sorry, he said presently, with an effort. He seemed trying to think. The last, he murmured, the last of this silly universe. What a mess. I listened. His head fell helplessly to one side. I thought some drink might revive him, but there was neither drink nor vessel in which to bring drink at hand. He seemed suddenly heavier. My heart went cold. I bent down to his face, put my hand through the rent in his blouse. He was dead. And even as he died, a line of white heat, the limb of the sun, rose eastward beyond the projection of the bay, splashing its radiance across the sky and turning the dark sea into a weltering tumult of dazzling light. It fell like a glory upon his death-shrunken face. I let his head fall gently upon the rough pillow I had made for him, and stood up. Before me was the glittering desolation of the sea, the awful solitude upon which I had already suffered so much, behind me the island, hushed under the dawn, its beast people silent and unseen. The enclosure, with all its provisions and ammunition, burnt noisily with sudden gusts of flame, a fitful crackling, and now and then a crash. The heavy smoke drove up the beach away from me, rolling low over the distant treetops towards the huts in the ravine. Beside me were the charred vestiges of the boats and these five dead bodies. Then out of the bushes came three beast people, with hunched shoulders, protruding heads, misshapen hands awkwardly held, and inquisitive, unfriendly eyes, and advanced towards me with hesitating gestures. End of section 20.